It's time to experience the Synergy Connection Show with your host, Lucy Forsting. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Synergy Connection Show, where we connect the dots between who we are as physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual beings. And um, we are complex. Um, The most important part of it, of course, is the physical, because without good physical health, it's really difficult to master the other three facets. Um, we might be more emotional if we're not healthy. Uh, we might be, you know, tending towards anger or frustration or sadness or anxiety or any of those things if we are not, you know, at our optimal health. And so I always tell people to go to my website, which is www.synergyconnectionradio.com. And when you get there, you're going to see a link into Boomers Forever Young. And these are world-class products that I've been using for about five years. And I tell people the importance of knowing your inflammation level and your immune system level. And the immunity part is done through a simple blood test called a D as in dog three. And you want that number to be above 70. I just had my physical done, met with my doctor. And she said, my goodness, you're 30 years younger uh, physically than you are chronologically. And so my immune system is 100. I don't think I'm gonna be coming down with much of anything anytime soon. Um, The other test is a C-reactive protein and that's your level of inflammation. You want that number to be below one. The majority of people, it is between three and probably six. If it's above that, then you have some serious health issues. So, Um, again, I just came back from my physical and this time in the past, it has been a 0.3 for the last two years. This time it was a 0.1. So I have virtually no inflammation running around inside of me. And that's the root of all disease is your inflammation level. Uh, there've been some recent studies by Harvard and Yale, uh, and, and that has indicated that one of the primary reasons for Alzheimer's and for Parkinson's is inflammation. And so we need to make sure you know what your inflammation level is and get it below one if you want to live a long and healthy life. Um, I have as a returning guest is uh, Keith Long and uh, Keith has done, I think three or four shows with me now. Uh, He's a Harvard Neiman Foundation scholar. He's also Florida Bar certified for continuing law education credits. And he has been a moderator of Black Lives Matter and the Innocence Project. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today is the Innocence Project and helping people understand what it is, if they are interested in learning more, how they can maybe participate or get involved in some way uh, with that whole project. So welcome back, Keith. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and uh, and your audience. Well, I'm sure that they learn a lot from you. Uh, you have a wealth of information, that's for sure. So what actually is the Innocence Project? I think a lot of people have heard those words, but they're not necessarily sure what it really means. 
yes, uh, I think uh, the the name kind of uh, suggests to people what it's about. It's about uh, identifying uh, wrongly convicted um, uh, persons who have been arrested and tried and judged guilty by a jury. And the way that the Innocence Project functions is um, based on science, typically DNA uh, testing, so that there is no question in their, in the outcome of their review, which is science-based, that uh, if a conviction uh, depends on forensic evidence, and the forensic evidence tied the accused person to the crime and if if it turns out that the evidence was flawed or or um, or altered or in some way misapplied in the trial then typically the court procedures permit that conviction to be flawed and thrown out or reversed. And but it's a case; uh, it's a high standard, in the sense that you're you're proving innocence, and not only for the Innocence Project, you're not only attempting to prove innocence, which is um, it's like okay, prove that you were not at a location on a date several years ago, and where this person was the victim of a crime. And if you can't prove it, then we'll just keep you in jail. It's just that simple. It's a very high bar. And it's not a, it's not a basis for justice. Uh, if that's the way the justice system were, were working. Fortunately, it's not. Um, the justice system requires a proof beyond a reasonable doubt that somebody not only was at a location where a crime occurred but was with the victim or committed the crime and they have to provide evidence um, beyond a reasonable doubt to confirm that in order to sentence that person to let's say prison or whatever it might be in florida they have the death penalty so there are occasions when uh when somebody is convicted and sentenced to death and the execution is carried out. And one of the things that the Innocence Project looks for is uh, if somebody is sentenced to die, they look at that and, and the trial required or depended on scientific DNA evidence. The Innocence Project likes to look at that evidence and see if it's valid. And so one might ask, well, probably not very likely. I mean, uh, the way the um, the way our culture is, especially in Florida, um, yeah, Florida has a history of, of kind of a law and order uh, uh, oriented um, legal system and legislative system and and police culture that wants to uh, find criminals and get them off the streets so that they don't commit crimes against law-abiding citizens. And so in that culture, uh, the Innocence Project comes swooping in, so to speak, where somebody is going to be executed and said, well, 
if you don't mind, we'll just confirm that what the prosecution said about the DNA evidence of this uh, convicted person is actually true, scientifically true. And so, for instance, uh, uh, a prosecutor may say, well, this person drank from a cup. We have the DNA evidence from that cup uh, with his DNA on it. And this was uh, at the scene of the crime. Therefore, uh, that places the accused person at the scene of the crime. And, and that person is saying they were somewhere else. And uh, so the Innocence Project will say, fine. I mean, it sounds reasonable to us. We'll just check the DNA process. And uh, what happens quite often is, is the prosecution is ambitious and their careers for prosecutors depends on convictions and their status in the uh, among their peers in the state's attorney's offices and among their colleagues and prosecutors depends on a high rate of conviction and so the i can tell you uh, i'm not telling any secrets actually in a prosecutor's culture convictions are the name of the game. Whether and, they're accurate or not? Well, uh, all I'm saying is that there is a priority for prosecutors that if somebody is charged, it's their job to gain a conviction. Hmm. And if they don't gain a conviction, uh, they, their career is uh, tarnished. And so the best prosecutors, quote in quotes, are those that have 100% convictions. Wow. And the one thing that they don't like is to have a conviction overturned for malpractice or altering evidence or falsifying evidence or things of that nature. So they're highly resistant, as is the justice system generally, to those kinds of inquiries. So they don't really like to have you guys come in as part of the Innocence Project to look at the evidence that much, I would think. That's right. And uh, I should say that I, I, I represent um, organizations that are affiliated with the Innocence Project. I'm not, I don't work for the Innocence Project myself. Mm -hmm. I, I advocate for what they do uh, personally. Didn't you but, tell me, I don't know whether this would be along the lines of the Innocence Project, but I remember one of our very first conversations, you were talking about O.J. Simpson and the blood right. that was actually put at the scene that wasn't his blood. Well, uh, that's right. And the actually, uh, Barry Schecht is a attorney. He's a well-known attorney. He's a founder of the Innocence Project, along with his partner named uh, Newman. And uh, back uh, in 1995, they were working for OJ's defense team. And actually, it's quite, it's quite a famous, although not popularly known element of the defense acquittal in that murder case, that the, uh, there, there were a couple of flaws in the prosecution. Marcia Clark drew a lot of, um, she was a prosecutor and also her partner um, uh, was criticized for bringing a glove in that did not fit O.J. Simpson's hand 
and asking him to try it on in front of the jury. And it was clearly not a size that fit him. It was a glove found at the scene of the crime. And, um, and uh, so there were other issues there with blood evidence that among the legal community are well known and that led to the, to the, to the interest in the Innocence Project. So what happened is O.J. Simpson was arrested and the police said, well, listen, uh, this is what happened. There's been a double murder and uh, it's your ex-wife and uh, a friend of hers and we want to take your blood to clear you. And so O.J. said, go ahead and have a ball. And he gave them his blood. So what happened and was brought out in the trial by Barry Schecht is that the uh, the forensic lab took his blood in a vial and they put what they call EDTA, which is a, a lab identifier into the vial. And it was eight cc's in this vial. If there's nurses out there, they'll know what eight cc's, eight cc's is. And, uh, and so, uh, and so the lab took the blood and, and what happened is, uh, one of the detectives, uh, uh, said, well, listen, let me have a, a little bit of that. Let me have that vial. Uh, we want to, um, we have a reason for asking. And so the lab gave them the detective OJ's blood in this file that he gave voluntarily. And they drove over to the crime scene and they drove over to his house uh, before he was charged or really investigated. Uh, and so 25% of that blood vial turned up at the at the crime scene and at his house and the reason they know it was from that vial is that it had edta a lab preservative identifier in it oh, okay so uh basically a a person that that said well who says well i don't like oj i think he's guilty i don't care about anything else they would say yeah it was probably planted but he probably deserved it anyway <laughs> And uh, but among uh, among people in the legal community, um, let's say on the defense side, they would say, well, if if you're going to say that, then you're going to you're going to give prosecutors and detectives the right to plant evidence, plant guns, plant drugs, do whatever they want, and uh, to entrap um, what may be an innocent person. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about the culture of prosecutors. So these detectives, uh, Mark Furman and um, Van Adder was the other detective, they have relationships with prosecutors. They work collaboratively with prosecutors to, to collect evidence, to present evidence, to get confessions so that the prosecutors get convictions. So it's not like these are independent agents who are just like looking for justice. Mm -hmm. They're out there collaborating to get convictions about whoever they come in contact with. So is it possible um, that they are also being reimbursed financially for doing something like that? 
Well, I mean, the only reason um, there would have to, uh, the way I would answer that is that um, there would have to, for me to believe that or to suspect that there would have to be a reason to suspect it. In that case, I don't think it's, it's not a financial, uh, it's not a financial incentive to go around bribing detectives, let's say prosecutors bribing detectives, which I think is what you're getting at to uh, to get easy convictions it's it's not that kind of a uh, that would put them in jeopardy and put the detectives in jeopardy uh for prison so i don't think that's that's the motivation i think it's a culture and uh and it's a it's a culture that i think is understandable uh when when it's placed which is under when it's understood in terms of career advancement and um, and uh, support among your peers and colleagues in a in a profession which is all about arresting bad guys and so and also there's very little accountability absent an organization like the innocence project there there really is no accountability for a detective who plants evidence uh, a prosecutor who uses evidence uh, that inappropriately or manufactures um, motives on the part of somebody who they accuse. I mean, they can do whatever, pretty much whatever they can get away with, and there's nobody overseeing them. Uh, the only person that could challenge them is the defense attorney, and quite often, uh, the defendant doesn't have the money to pay a dream team like uh, Lee, uh, Lee ba uh, Bailey, F. Lee Bailey, uh, Alan Dershowitz, and uh, Barry Sheck. So what makes, makes this interesting is that these were high-paid defense attorneys who could afford to go into this in detail and uncover the fact that there's evidence that the blood used to convict OJ was planted by police. So what happened to them? I'm just curious once it became clear that it was a plant. Well, that's that's the yeah, that's the lack of accountability in the prosecution and police culture and police profession. You your hands smacked a little bit and say don't do it again. No, yeah, they didn't even get their hands smacked. What what they were able, what there was a um, a measure of accountability. So Mark Furman um, was caught uh, lying. He was the first person on the scene in the OJ scene. He had uh, expressed anger toward OJ previously and had investigated OJ previously as well. And Mark Furman's been on TV quite a bit, usually on Fox. Yeah. And, um, and uh, you know, as a former detective, well, what he did, he, he made the mistake of taking the Fifth Amendment on the stand when he was asked if he was planning evidence or if he was, uh, had racial animosity towards Simpson. And he said, I'm not going to answer. I'm taking the Fifth Amendment. So a private detective working for the team who I know uh, 
Pat McKenna, who lives in Florida, found tapes of Mark Berman in what you might call racist rants uh, against African Americans. And, and Mark had said that he was not a racist, he never would say anything like that. So what he, Mark did, uh, by his own words, on the stand, was caught in a lie by the defense team for O.J. Simpson. Hmm. So that enabled, that was the only reason that Mark Furman was convicted of perjury in that trial and was thrown off the police force because basically he was caught. And so, you know, basically the only way police get caught is, is if somebody, if they lie and are caught in a lie in court. Otherwise, they're home free, mm. except for the Innocence Project. So the Innocence Project comes in, and I started to say that they look for uh, people who are going to be executed using uh, DNA evidence. And what uh, the Innocence Project does is they look pretty closely and just confirm that the evidence is correct. Uh, the, the project doesn't want to free guilty people. Who, let's say commit murder they just want to be sure that innocent people aren't being executed right do do they know how many people maybe in the last say 25 years were yeah. convicted and were executed and they were innocent yeah uh, there have been uh, almost two dozen executions of innocent people that dna confirmed after their execution uh were innocent so what happens to those families? Because all along they're being told, right. I'm not guilty. So is there compensation for a life that was taken? Uh, it's, uh, it's, they have the right to find a lawyer to sue them and to sue the uh, state in civil court. Uh, and whether they collect anything is, is kind of a separate issue. I don't, don't know how many did. But there were um, 150 investigations of people who were sentenced to die and though in those 150 cases those execution sentences were reversed hmm. so in addition to the two dozen who were actually killed by the state and were innocent there was another 150 uh, who were going to be killed executed and and the dna confirmed that they were innocent as well so then what happens to those individuals? I mean, well, I mean you, every once in a while we hear about, we'll see something uh, on TV where somebody's being released. And sometimes the legislature has to pass a bill specifically uh, giving them compensation, $10,000 a year for the time they spent and maybe something else for the uh, trauma of facing execution. And so they get, you know, whatever they, the legislature decides. Hmm. So it's not a, uh, you know, what, it, what to me, what the, the value of all this is, one of, the, one of the elements that is a takeaway is that, that people who like to think that the justice system is, um, works well, doesn't convict innocent people, and and the people in the justice system are are doing God's work. Uh, what people who are familiar with the justice system say 
uh, is that that is far from the case. And, uh, and, and basically they point to the experience of the Innocence Project and others uh, to confirm that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. Well, we're going to take a quick pause here, Keith. We'll be right back, everyone, with more uh, to hear about the Innocence Project. Are you feeling stressed and anxious about life? Have elevated blood pressure? Experiencing weight gain? Having problems with your immune system? Getting healthy and staying healthy is more important than ever, and it has never been easier when you have fundamental nutrition from Boomer Products. Restore the youth and vitality you are used to in just minutes a day. Check out our website at www.boomerboost.com to see thousands of reviews from customers just like you who are benefiting from Boomer Products. While you're there, check out our podcasts, blogs, and videos, and get caught up on the latest health news and information. Use promo code LUCY at checkout. That's L-U-C-Y to save $5 on your order. Stop existing and start living today with Boomer Products. Welcome back, everyone, to the Synergy Connection Show. And I have as my guest, Keith Long. And Keith and I have been talking about the Innocence Project and how it impacts not only the individual who is in prison, but certainly family members who believed all along that that person was innocent and they just you know, didn't have the ability, maybe financially or otherwise, to hire, as uh, Keith put, the dream team to come in and rescue them. So, all right, so what else can we learn about, you know, there are so many just here in Florida that that's happened to. So across the United States, are there numbers that go with that? I would think if there's, you know, over 200 here, then. Yeah, there's, uh, there's um, since it, uh, well, since uh, in the last uh, 30 or 40 years, there's been 2,400 um, exonerations from faulty DNA uh, evidence wow. in the system. And uh, so, I mean, in some ways, you can kind of understand, you know, based on, let's say, the color of somebody's skin or their educational level or, you know, whatever it might be, that it's really hard to get a fair shake because prosecutors want a conviction. And not all the time are these people going to be able to hire, you know, the right kind of defense. So I imagine just like with people that are concerned about police um, indiscriminately arresting somebody that is innocent, if they do go to trial, I'm sure the concern is, can I get a fair shake? You know, will yeah. I be listened to? Will they do their due diligence? And the answer I would give is that they're very, those people are, are right to wonder and they're very much on their own. If uh, if they are charged, uh, it's very much up in the air, in my opinion, about uh, the outcome uh, serving, let's say, justice. Mm -hmm. And um, and so the, the I uh, give uh, programs to public defenders' offices, and what what I've learned is that the public defenders are uh, seriously underfunded, understaffed and overworked and so the reason is that so many of the 
accused and arrested people don't have an attorney so they go to the public defender and there's too many of those cases for the public defender's office to defend adequately mm -hmm. and so they get less than than optimal uh defendants defenses for those charges and um and so uh it's regardless of and of course the, the reason for that is the legislature doesn't fund public defenders offices as a policy um where so, do they get their funding i mean you know since we know that legal aid you know is kind of available but you're mm -hmm. going to wait in a long line yeah legal aid is um you know through through um some sources is is i would say very marginal and very restricted in terms of actual execution of substantive support for somebody accused uh, the the public defenders offices are funded by the state and that's a function of the legislature and it goes to the you know kind of the florida culture i'll call it and uh and the people in the legislature don't win elections by being sympathetic to criminals and mm -hmm. so the presumption is if somebody's arrested and charged that chances are pretty good that they're a criminal and so the legislature goes up to Tallahassee on, on their 90 day sessions or whatever it is and say, am I going to go back home and run for reelection advocating more money for uh, defending um, uh, these criminals, accused criminals or whatever, it doesn't make any difference They're They've been charged and arrested and, you know, probably are. That's the that's the culture of the electorate. But we've lost that whole presumed innocent. Yeah, of course, and um, and that's why somebody like myself is attracted to organizations like the Innocence Project. They come in and they say, "Look, we're not going to advocate for anybody's um, re reopening of anybody's cases except if there is positive." reliable, indisputable scientific evidence that that person shouldn't be in jail for this crime. And anything else we're not looking at, but for those cases, we are. And so um, what they found out is that there's much more of that going on than, than they had thought. And, and so to me, the, so criticizing the justice system is like, is doesn't impress me at all it doesn't i don't get off on that what uh somebody said to me he says well you you can criticize this subject all you want so what are you going to do about it? you know <laughs> what's your uh, answer and and um and so there there are solutions to it uh for example the the prison system has a recidivism rate of uh 75 percent so wow. we lock these, yeah, we lock these people up, uh, and they used to be locked up for possessing marijuana or smoking it. And then they legalized it, so all those people that were arrested and jailed for smoking marijuana, all of a sudden they were they were arrested and locked up for doing something that's now legal. So into that system, these people go, and uh, and 
in that culture and in that system, there is no rehabilitation. That is not, it's not what the prison guards are interested in doing. It's not their fault. It's what they're told to do. So they learn criminal behavior while they're there. Yeah, a lot of them come from places that that the culture they grew up in was very simple. It was like, okay, uh, I was uh, arrested for selling Lucy cigarettes, like two or three normal cigarettes outside of a store, let's say in Brooklyn. And I could make a little money that way. And that's what I was doing. And they arrested me. One of the guys who was doing that was killed by police and became very famous. Uh, and that was their justification for killing him is that he, he was a big man and he didn't like being handcuffed. So they just killed him. And uh, that was his crime. So other people are in that circumstance where they get arrested and they can't get a job. And they may be selling marijuana, they may be selling uh, cocaine because it's in the street in their neighborhoods, what everybody else is doing. Their other friends can't get a job because they were arrested for something, loitering or whatever. And so they ask themselves, well, what am I going to do? I mean, how am I going to make money to do anything? And so who knows? They may go into a convenience store like in uh, Missouri and steal some uh, beer or some cigarettes. What else are they going to do? Nobody's going to hire them. The system is constructed so that they have no choice in effect, mm-hmm. especially if they're black or minority. Right. And then they throw them in jail. And what do they get? They get people who have the same experience and have the same solution. And so recidivism is like out the window, it's up through the roof. And so, so I started to say, so what is your solution? Well, uh, Germany and, and Europe, uh, say uh, Western Europe, has a emphasis on rehabilitation and lighter sentences and, and a friendly environment for people convicted of theft or whatever it might be, or even hitting somebody. And they get rehabilitation and their recidivism rates are like much less than half. So the idea is in America, the culture is kind of something that's been hard to change. It's like from the old West, you know, if we don't have a tree nearby, throw them in jail and throw away the key. And we still have that culture of if you're arrested, you're probably a criminal. I don't care about you. I don't care what goes on in prison. I don't care about any of that. And so as long as there, as long as we as a culture have that perspective and turn and for example, and OJ, OJ is a perfect example that I like to bring up because there's a guy that no, that generally speaking, if you're white, nobody likes. He got away with murder, a double murder. He's, um, he, you know, there's a lot of reasons not to like him. And so the question then becomes, well, so that's fine. You don't have to like him. The question is, was he, did he get a fair trial? Is the justice system that's trying him and other people and putting him in front of a minority jury, is that in any ways fair? 
And so, and the answer among the jurors and among the black community was, well, you've got a detective who was at the crime scene and at his house before as the first person who was a racist, who was out to get him on tape. And you've got another detective who was a colleague of Furman's who brought his blood and sprinkled it around at the crime scene and in his house to convict him. Mm -hmm. And so black people, when they were cheering, when he was acquitted, all of a sudden, for me, it puts that cheering in a different perspective. And the jury acquitted him unanimously uh, because they, in my opinion, they were sending a message to go fix your system before you ask a minority jury to convict black people. Right. And to me, I said, you know what? That's pretty neat. I kind of like that. Mm-hmm. And so I asked myself, so if somebody asks me, I said, what are you doing to improve? What's your answer? My answer is that you don't corrupt the system to convict minorities or anybody else because you don't like them. Exactly. If you're going to have a system, then you stand up and expect and have expectations for the system to be just. You know, one of the things that, um, and I, again, I'm not sure that it absolutely fits what we're talking about, but trafficking, you know, we, we've had mm-hmm. so much of that recently and women in particular that have been trafficked, you know, for sexual purposes that end up in prison because either one, they're caught or two, you know, they've tried to get away and maybe shot, you know, the person that was trafficking them. Right. Um, and so, I mean, in a way, you know, they're now doing programs in women's prisons to bring up their self-esteem and to help them understand how to avoid getting back in that same situation. Right. Um, and I, I think that that is what's called for. Actually, when I got out of graduate school years ago, a partner and myself, um, we got funded by a major corporation in the St. Louis area to um, reduce recidivism. And that is what we did. It was called the Thinker's Edge program. Mm-hmm. And we would go in with young offenders, you know, that most of them were under the age of 30, but it was a first time offense. They didn't kill anyone. They didn't hurt anyone, but they were arrested and they were there. And to help them understand that their thinking had to change unless they were, if they were going to really be rehabilitated. Um, otherwise they would end up back in prison, but the next time it would be worse. Right. Yeah, well, that's the, those are the kind of programs that, that can actually create change. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. So, well, I don't know, where do we go from here with something like the innocent uh, project at this point? Well, I think uh, for me, the, the takeaway is it, it reveals um, it reveals the justice system, but it also uh, I'm not a, um, I'm not a so I'm a investigative journalist. Um, and um, and so I'm not afraid to to report what I find to to my readers or to the public these days, digital or video. And uh, so I would say and do say to the public, uh, it's not 
it's not an issue really for the justice system alone. It's an, it's an issue for you. And it's an attitude issue about uh, whose responsibility it is to reform and change and improve uh, trials, arrests, prosecutions, prisons, uh, because ultimately those situations and circumstances exist because your representatives, your political representatives want it to exist. So as I said, um, your, our representatives up in Tallahassee, they choose to maintain and enable the system. They so is it an educational process? I mean that we need to have more people educating those that make the decisions as to where the funding goes? Well, I think, yeah, I would say it's, it's um, I would say it's, it's, it's less educational uh, for, for the people in the system. And it's more a, uh, a requirement that people who make the, the ultimate decision, which to me is the legislature. Yeah, it's where the money comes from, because they have to have more money if they're going to get better trials for these people, you know, that are convicted innocently. Not only that, but the legislature could tomorrow uh, pass laws that reform the prison system, hmm. look more like what happens in Western Europe, let's say, and to uh, change the sentencing laws or the discretion of judges to, to uh, do rehabilitative oriented sentencing for, uh, for crimes uh, that are, let's say, nonviolent crimes as a starting point. And the reason that 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 the end and to address the the disproportionate negative influences on minorities and poor people, but the reason that none of that is happening is because our legislators don't want it to. So and they go up, they go up to Tallahassee and nobody ever says to them they would never listen to somebody like me. They would they would walk out in a heartbeat. If I said to them, it's your responsibility to do something, they would say, ah, it's lunchtime. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we gotta, I gotta go, sorry, I have another appointment. Right, right, and so how do you get them to listen? Well, it's, it, well, ultimately that's why, to me, it's my, I guess my argument is that it's the, it's the public's responsibility because ultimately the public is the one that elects these legislatures and the legislators from our district. And somebody will show up, I have no doubt at all, if they discover that, wow, I can get elected to the legislature if I just say that we need to reform long lines we're talking about and the public will elect me. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's, that's a shock. But ultimately it goes back to the public and so there's there's people in an audience. You listen to school board meetings or uh, uh, or political meetings, and you get all kinds of attitudes that people stand up and shake their finger at somebody, and um, and it's it's very emotional. And um, what needs to happen is the public needs to have thought leaders and influencers, in my opinion who simply advocate for change 
And, and if there aren't any leaders and public speakers and advocates uh, in the community who advocate for that kind of change, then it's the public's, that's what the public wants. Wow. I mean, it, in, my, in my estimation, we haven't come that far in the last hundred years, mm. you know, because it's who has the biggest gun, who has the, um, you know, fastest horse, uh, you know, like the Wild West days in, in many respects. So I can understand getting, quote unquote, criminals off the street. Yes, mm. especially if there is violence. Uh, we just had that situation in uh, Brooklyn, mm -hmm. you know, in the subway. So, uh, you know, they found that individual. Um, he evidently has a long history of mental illness. And, right. um, and that's the other issue is we don't have enough. My goodness, when I started out as a psychotherapist, we had clinics, we had hospitals, you know, that helped people. Now, the insurance companies have pretty much done away with a lot of that. People have been forced to not even practice anymore because they've reduced the amount of money they can make. And, you know, so they're better off working in, in real estate or, you know, someplace else other than actually in mental health. And we have fewer and fewer beds. So it's very frustrating when you realize that so many of those that have been killed recently had mental health issues. Right. So uh, you're in that space. So what, how would you what would you recommend for somebody like this individual in Brooklyn or others who have mental illness and then the system treats them as a criminal and they don't treat as mental illness? Mm -hmm. So how would you resolve that? I have no idea, quite honestly. Um, it's bigger than, you know, something that I'm going to probably think of. But I think, first of all, if he has a history, they have to examine the history. You know, what, what was his diagnosis? Was he on medication? Was he using illegal drugs at the time? You know, you have to look at all of those features so that he might have not had a fully premeditated kind of situation that would classify him as a criminal in one area, but he might have thought it out in a kind of cockamamie way um, because of his mental health issues. That I'm going to get rid of, you know, bad guys as he perceives them to be bad guys. But I don't know that much about him, so I would hesitate to say very much. But I, I do believe that we have a majority of cases that are locked up, uh, whether it's violence or otherwise, that have mental health that has not been treated. They're on the wrong medications if they were being treated. And maybe thirdly, um, there is, uh, you know, either alcohol, but more likely uh, opiates or drugs of some sort that mm -hmm. altered their, you know, perception of life. Right. And you have to look at that and not just the criminal behavior. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Hmm. Well, this is a very, very important topic. It's a big topic. <laughs> I love the fact that uh, we can openly discuss it without censorship of any kind. And uh, so I really appreciate you being, you know, on the show. How can people get hold of you if they would like to know more about this project or about what you do or how you could help them? Sure, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, that's uh, very simple to do. Look me up there, Keith Long. And uh, also my email is kdlong and then the word many, like a lot, at Gmail. And um, Journalist on Call is my website.
All right. Well, again, I appreciate you being my guest. It's always wonderful to have these kind of conversations with you. And uh, everybody out there, please uh, share the show with others and let them uh, hear you know, about this particular project and about how Keith might be able to um, facilitate them with some part of their life. And go out there and please make this your best life. Thanks so much. Talk to you next time. Boomers Forever Young is really making a name for themselves as an exciting nutritional company with products that really work. People from all over the country are starting to take notice. Their whole person approach to health and wellness, combined with their unique array of powerful natural health products, are setting them apart from all the other companies in the nutrition industry. Their customers love the one-on-one -on -one free consultations and the results they experience. Sound a little too good to be true? Then go online to boomerboost.com today and sign up for a free consultation with a product specialist or just give us a call at 1-800-861-4609. Again, that's boomerboost.com or call 1-800-861-4609 to join the thousands already experiencing the benefits of Boomers Forever Young products.